Crescent City Crime contains violent and explicit content that is not suitable for a younger audience. Certain topics may be disturbing or triggering to some listeners. Listen at your own risk. Thank you for supporting the podcast by listening to Crescent City Crime. Please help spread the word of the podcast by telling a friend about us. You may help further support the show by leaving us a five-star review on your preferred podcasting platform. We are also on Patreon at Crescent City Crime. Check the episode description for source links, as well as links to our social media accounts. The music used in this introduction is called The Black Fingerprint, and it was composed by Dylan Owen. Welcome to Crescent City Crime, dear listeners. I'm Tracy. And I'm Brian. Welcome to everybody, old and new. We're always very pleased to put out content for you. And hey, I made a rhyme. Yes, thank you for listening. We enjoy having you listen, and we enjoy doing this for you. And to every mother who is listening to this, a happy belated Mother's Day. Uh, that includes fur moms, human moms, plant moms, reptile moms, all the moms. Happy Mother's Day. So today, Brian, we are discussing our very first serial killer. Please don't tell me Captain Crunch has died. He was killed in a battle with the cops. <sighs> Sad ending. He, he took two cans, Sam, and a Lucky Charms elf hostage. Tragic end. After he killed Tony the Tiger and the Cocoa Puffs bird. And the Cocoa Puffs bird. And killing Tony the Tiger was unforgivable. So sad. Me and the captain used to make it happen at breakfast time when I was a kid on Saturday mornings. For me, it was all about the Frosted Flakes, man. It's all about the Frosted Flakes and all about Tony. And so we both lost here. We, we both lost something here. Sad. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> no, but really. Uh, so, Brian, but... Seriously, did you know that over the next two episodes, we are talking about, at the very least, one killer, but could perhaps be discussing as many as three killers? I've, it's the type of pattern that I'm, I'm familiar with. And I just want to tell the, uh, the true crime aficionados who are listening to the show that this is not the only time that there has been perhaps more than one killer using the same hunting grounds. Yeah, copycats were out there. And of course, uh, depending upon population size, it's entirely possible that certain, certain socioeconomic patterns can spawn more than one version of, of uh, the same kind of psychopath. Well, it's also speculated, for example, that the Long Island serial killer may actually be more than one person because there are different MOs. And the now it might just be one killer. We don't really know. Nobody really knows, okay? But it could be more than one only because... 
there's been different MOs, but the bodies have been dumped in kind of the same area. So maybe not people working together, just different killers out there kind of working independently. Yeah, such a coincidence as possible. So we're going back to 1991. From 1991 to 1996 in New Orleans, one or more serial killers were using New Orleans as a hunting ground. The victims were between 17 to 42 years of age. The unknown killer or killers largely targeted sex workers. Of course, this is a classic serial killer pattern of choosing victims that were considered high-risk and disposable. Most of the victims had arrest records for drugs, theft, or soliciting, and others were known drug users. Most of the victims were strangled to death, while a number of others were beaten and drowned, and, but all of them were dumped in swamps, rivers, or canals in remote areas. Many of the victims' bodies were left in water spanning from several. Most of them were strangled to death while a number of others were beaten and drowned and then dumped in swamps, rivers, or canals in remote areas. Many of the victims' bodies were left in water spanning from several weeks to several years. This resulted in extreme decomposition and destruction of incriminating evidence. It sounds like uh, the psychopath or psychopaths right, is taking a very, very sadistic pleasure in what they're doing because these are, these are relatively slow deaths. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. This is not a quick thing like a gunshot. This is slow and painful for the, it was slow and painful for those women. Yeah, this is the type of psychotic killer who, as I've kind of touched upon previously, could have easily filled the ranks of the of Germany's SS to including staff at concentration camps. You might not be far off with that assessment. Throughout the remainder of 1991 and up until 1995, a to- Throughout the remainder of 1991 and up until 1995, a total of 27 bodies would be found. That's quite a body count for one person. That, that sounds like it would be more than one person. All of the bodies were found throughout the metro area on both the east and west banks and in more remote areas such as Hanville and Laplace, Louisiana. Seven of the bodies were found in St. John Parish. This fell, or St. John Parish fell under the jurisdiction of Major C.J. Dester. I want everybody to remember that name. The victims, some of the victims were sexually assaulted, and most of them had a large amount of drugs in their systems. Now, when I say a large amount of drugs in their systems, I mean that if you start to overdose on drugs, okay, things happen to your body and you can't take any more. You might not die right away, but you can't take any more. So the only way to get a certain amount of drugs in your system is if somebody is perhaps delivering it via enema 
or they just keep injecting you over and over again while you're tied down. Which also suggests uh, sadistic pleasure on the part of these psychopaths. Yes. And the sexual assaults also suggest that as well. Uh, very much the desire to subjugate these women who have already been devalued by this individual. Exactly. In 1994, Tangipahoa Parish authorities reported that they had lost the remains of the Jane Doe's who were found in their jurisdiction. In an effort to correct the error, 110 bodies were from the potter's field where they think they were buried, but they were unable to locate the missing remains. The family of a missing New Orleans woman who was named Patience Jupiter believed that she was one of the missing Jane Doe's. And while authorities agreed, they could not reach a definite conclusion. So not only did, did some of the families, well, I mean, all these families lost somebody. Okay. Not only did that happen, some of these families were not able to even claim their family members remains because they were lost. Which demonstrates the tip, the tendency of sex workers being devalued by law enforcement as well. And, yes. and district and district attorneys. Yes. And district attorneys. And, and, and then this is an indictment on society overall. There's very little public outcry for these kinds of victims as well. I couldn't have said it better myself. And at, at the, at the very least, Psychopaths do not, should not be entitled to practice their sadistic pleasures on anyone, anyone at all. Nowhere, no way, no how, no time ever. Yeah, yeah. Including Germany. Go ahead. And that, no, that was not a joke. That's serious commentary. Go ahead. In 1995, a task force was formed. The task force was coordinated through the FBI and law enforcement members from the New Orleans Police Department and surrounding parishes. Even though there were over 20 victims and two suspects, only one man would be charged for any, for any of the crimes, and the current whereabouts of the other suspect or suspects is currently unknown. In today's episode, we will discuss one of the possible killers, and next week we will talk about the person who was actually convicted, and we will also go over the possibility of a third killer. We start our tale on August the 4th, 1991 in Algiers, Louisiana. Algiers is considered a part of Orleans Parish and is across the river from downtown New Orleans. Within that small section of the city, the body of 17-year-old Danielle Britton was found covered with trash inside of a drainage ditch. She had been raped and strangled. An investigator on that case, Detective Elizabeth Wigington, learned that a similar attack had occurred two weeks earlier in the middle of July. The anonymous victim of that attack is only identified under the alias Brenda in court records. According to her testimony, she was walking to a friend's house 
when someone in a dark colored vehicle that may have been either a Buick Regal or a Chevrolet Monte Carlo began following her. Again, don't follow people. Do not follow people. Don't ever do that. That's so creepy. He offered her a ride, and when she refused, he abducted, assaulted, and strangled her, and then dumped her in the same area that Danielle had been found in. Brenda gave a description of her attacker, from which an identikit was created. She described him as a muscular, well-dressed, middle-aged black male, and she also worked with a police sketch artist. He likely did not intend for her to survive, and her testimony would align with a pair of murders less than four years later. In that time period, the bodies of many other women would be found. Their names were Tyra Tasson, Charlene Price, Regina Oko, Lydia Madison, Regina Martin, Cheryl Lewis, Stephanie Murray, Michelle Foster, Stephanie Brown, Wanda Ford, and Sandra Warner. Within that time period, five Jane Doe's were also found. The remains of two female identifying people who performed in the French Quarter were also found. They are officially identified as Noah Filson and Henry Calvin in their autopsies. The other remains were never identified, and that body is classified as a John Doe. The last two victims were found after an almost year-long gap in the murders, and their names were Sandra Williams and Lola Porter. Many of these women were mothers who were trying to feed their kids. And, you know, if you have starving kids at home, you're either, you're either going to start stealing bread or you're going to do, do anything that you can to make some money. Yes, mo most most mothers would do absolutely anything if it means feeding their children. Yes. So don't judge them for trying to feed their kids. Which it, and it's all and once again it's horrible that a psychopath or a number of psychopaths decided to judge these women. I mean, they, their lives still meant something, no matter if they were addicts or sex workers or what, their lives still meant something, and any opportunity that they had to improve their lives was snatched away. And those who actually cared for them were deprived of yes. them for the rest of their lives. Yes. Also, keep in mind that a psychopath is capable of devaluing anyone's life, including those of, of people that they may care about in their own inner circles, their own family. Correct. They can turn on anyone. Now, the previous pattern that we described had largely been women who... Now, the previous pattern that we had described would not be the case on April the 30th, 1995. Along a remote stretch of the I-55 in sleepy St. John Parish, a fisherman would discover the body of Karen Ivester. Next to her, bo next to her body 
was a footprint from a woman's sneaker and a wad of chewing tobacco. And I want everybody to remember the chewing tobacco. Put a pin in that. She had been dead for less than 12 hours. Later that same day, the body of Sharon Robinson, who had been Karen's best friend, had been found just one mile south from Karen Ivester off the exit ramp. Sharon was still dressed in her Harris Casino work outfit, and her work badge was on her body. One of Harris's first employees, I believe. Probably so, yeah. Yeah, that was her. I was early on there, and she was apparently deprived of the opportunities that Harris would have afforded her long term. She was also a mother. Yeah. So children were deprived here of their mother. Okay. The footprint found next to Karen Iverson's body was matched to the shoes that Sharon Robinson was wearing at the time of her death. The autopsy showed that neither woman had drugs in their system. Ultimately, it would be those two women that would lead police back to one of their own, an officer named Victor Gant. Ah, yes. The person who apparently did something he wasn't supposed to do in the line of duty you mentioned earlier. We'll, we'll get to that. Don't okay. worry. Gant spent his childhood and youth in Algiers. He became a police officer in February 1980, and while on patrol, Gant would spend a lot of time in red light districts. Within that world, he built a network of sex workers, their pimps, and street informants. You don't say. No, I don't say. <laughs> in the early 1990s, Gant gained a reputation for being corrupt after a number of informants reported that he, along with a few others, were running racketeering operations against pimps and other criminals. A dirty cop. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Mm, for sale. Some of them are. It was revealed that during this time, he met Sharon Robinson, who soon became his roommate. On December the 9th, 1994, Robinson went to the police to report him for beating her. And according to her statement, Gant punched her in the face and broke her nose. Gant denied the accusation, stating that he had pushed her during an argument and Robinson hit her nose on a chair. Well, yeah, some of the some of the abuse and hatred of women, sadistic tendencies came out, and apparently, unfortunately, there are a handful of police officers who get attracted to the ranks and the power of police in, in, in the exact same fashion as certain people did in Nazi Germany as well. Sharon Robinson's children said they witnessed Victor Gant beating their mother. This happened in front of her kids. Yeah, yeah. They, well, that, that was an era where it was much easier to get away with police brutality, even during the 80s. That's very true. The 80s were incredibly different towards domestic violence than it is today. 
back then it was still referred to as a family problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The children's testimony was backed up by the emergency room doctor who testified that the woman's injuries were the result mm -hmm. of a beating. So we have not only kids, we have the backup of a qualified medical professional. Who was obviously seeing this these types of uh, these types of bruises yes. before. In early 1995, a disciplinary panel and hearing to determine Gantt's punishment began. During the hearing, members of the disciplinary committee reviewed the testimony of the prosecution's witnesses. The key witness was supposed to be Robinson, but unfortunately she could not give any testimony at all. Investigators believed that Gantt had killed both Sharon and Karen in order to get rid of them. Investigators found out that Gant held a personal grudge against Karen mm -hmm. Ivester and had spoken negatively about her on multiple occasions. And this is something else, a classic abuser pattern wherein they're going to try to isolate their victim. I can promise you that Victor Gant did not like Karen because Karen could have represented a way out for Sharon. Like, let's say if Sharon decided to leave... And mm. Karen, like Karen would help her move out. Right. Okay. Now, Sharon was a mother of three children and she had left him. The night before the murders, Karen Ivester was last seen by two of her children before leaving her apartment to go to work in the French Quarter. So Karen and Sharon worked in the same area of town. Yeah, the uh, the Vaucouray. Yes. As it's also called and I understand back then the the district that was that, that covers the French Quarter was called the Vucare district as opposed to being called the eighth the eighth district today. Oh, okay. About five hours after both women reported for their shifts, Karen was seen standing outside the employee exit of Harris Casino. It is believed that she was waiting on Sharon Robinson. What their plans were are unknown. But Victor and Sharon were seen together at about 2.30 a.m. in the downtown area. During interviews, Sharon's daughter, Dewana, revealed that her mother and Gant fought all the time. My mother had a broken nose once, and she went to the police, but a lot of the things were swept under the rug because he was a police officer. On August 12, 1995, the chief of the NOPD at the time, Richard Pennington, held a press conference and confirmed that a serial killer was stalking the city streets. During the press conference, Pennington dropped a bombshell. Can you guess what that bombshell was, Brian? It was an announcement about a certain officer named Gant. Well, he named Victor Gant as a suspect in the murders of Karen Iverson and Sharon Robinson, but he did not connect him with the name of the serial as being the serial killer in this press conference. 
it kind of makes sense that he that he that he believes a police officer is only guilty of of one particular crime and is not a serial killer because that that's actually rare for a police officer to be a serial killer, isn't it? I actually I think you are right, even though a lot of serial killers have traditionally shown interest in law enforcement. Because they're seeking, they're seeking power. Because they're seeking over, power, over yeah. they're seeking trust. Yeah. Okay, you know, like if you're looking for potential victims, they might trust a police officer. Yeah, Psych- psychopaths who are seeking power are going to prefer p- positions of authority over people. That's very true. Major C.J. Dester said that Gant knew he was suspected because he was interviewed by law enforcement on May the 4th, 1995. Of course, Gant denied any wrongdoing and refused to take a lie detector test. Now, a lie detector test is not admissible evidence in the state of Louisiana, but it can help determine a pattern of behavior. Yeah, it can, it can lead investigators in a, in a direction. Yes. In the system and inter- it, it can assist investi- investigators in interrogating someone. Major Dester said he gave them a lot of answers, and after they interviewed him, they took his information and went out and interviewed other people, and they were able to determine a lot of his statements that seemed to go along with the people that they were interviewing. So he was lying. About a lot of things, apparently. Did that come up in the polygraph, or did he, or is he a pathological liar? Well, he did not take a lie detector test. This is all based off of interviews. So what he was saying, oh, that's right, was okay. not matching what the people around him were saying. You know, like if if you're hearing the same story from five different people, but the sixth person is telling a different story, who's the liar? Obviously, the one with a different story. Right. In June of 1985, I'm sorry, in June of 1995, authorities obtained a warrant that sought head hair and pubic hair, as well as saliva samples from Gantt. The samples, along with the wad of chewing tobacco found near Ivester's body, were were sent off to the crime lab for comparison. And this is when DNA was still in its infancy. Like the technology that we have today for DNA testing is miles ahead of where it was in 1995. Yeah, yeah. Even though, interestingly enough, in the United States military, DNA samples were being taken from members of uh, the United States Marine Corps and other service branches with uh, cotton swabs. When you were in, yes, yeah, yeah, and you were you were in around this time, wasn't it? Like nineteen ninety one, you were over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I spent about half of nineteen ninety one between Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. Okay. Well, about four months later, the DNA tests were returned as inconclusive and charges were never filed against Victor Gantz. 
so they could not conclusively link Victor Gantz to any of these deaths whatsoever. None of them. Because the DNA testing was not good enough at the time. I mean, I don't know whatever became of that sample. I wouldn't be surprised if it was just lost somewhere and or thrown away. Yeah, and all, all tampered with. Tampered with. Yeah. Yeah. In August of 1996, Richard Pennington, who had been promoted to police superintendent for Orleans Parish, held a disciplinary hearing. As a result of the hearing, Victor Gant was fired for four departmental violations, and one of those violations was the battery of Sharon Robinson. So it looks like they really only did something when their hand was forced, when this became public knowledge. But otherwise, the NOPD at the time was very happy to sweep this <laughs> under the rug. Yeah, even though Pennington was billed as a reformer in the department, do you think he was reforming it at all? To to some to some extent, yes. Okay. Although that was, if I, I believe that was the beginning of a public integrity division that has been historically overzealous ever since. But that's a different topic. That is a different topic. <clears throat> During an interview with the Times-Picayune after the hearing, Gantt said, I'm very disappointed in the superintendent. I thought he treated me unfairly. A lot of other people who have been charged worse than that are still on the job. <laughs> well, well, yeah, which, which, which has proven to be true. Unfortunately, uh, you're yeah, correct. Later on, yes. Victor Gantt's interview was interrupted when Sharon's older sister, Terry, and a group of supporters walked up and confronted him. Terry Robinson held up a photograph of her sister and yelled at Gantz, Look at her. How can you do this to us? All she wanted to do was love you. I hope she haunts you every night. Every night. Would you like to know what Gantz's response to this was, Brian? Absolutely nothing, because he doesn't feel a damn thing. Well, he spit chewing tobacco juice at them. You know, like the chewing tobacco wad that was Imagine found that, a psychopath, by the body. a psychopath rubbing it in. Mm-hmm. Not, not surprising. Not surprising at all. And Victor Gant was not done. Just four months after that, Gant made headlines again after he and his girlfriend at the time, Karen Thibodeau, each filed battery complaints against one another. Thibodeau said that Grant had choked and threatened her. Not, not, not a surprise. Not a, not a surprise at all. That type of very, very sadistic, abusive individual. Terry Robinson was also somebody who was not surprised. She said of the incident, it seems to be a pattern with Victor. I hope Karen Thibodeau pursues this to the full extent of the law. Victor Gant needs to know that there are females who will challenge him. He needs to know that he can't go on brutalizing women. In spite of Terry's strong words, 
Gant and Thibodeau dropped their charges against each other after they met with their attorneys. Now, the last thing that could be found publicly on Victor Gant is that he moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where he, for a brief period of time, worked with the Carver College Police Department. There are, in fact, photos of Victor Gant in, in an auxiliary officer uniform on the department's website. In spite of the photos, the Carver College Police Chief denied that Victor Gant had ever worked for the department, but it was later found out that Victor Gant was just quietly let go. <laughs> that, that's the typical uh, admit nothing, deny everything. Exactly. And to this day, after more than two decades since the murders, Victor Gant is still a person of interest in the investigation. Major Destra said Victor is a strong, strong suspect in not only Sharon and Karen's homicide, but he could very well have a lot of ties to these other bodies that were found. And I want everyone to remember that three victims did not have drugs in their systems when they died because it will tie into next week's episode. And as for my final thoughts, I personally believe that Victor for sure killed Sharon and Karen at the very least. Even though the DNA was inconclusive on the chewing tobacco wad, the other circumstances absolutely point in his direction, but as of now, it's just circumstantial evidence that wouldn't get past a grand jury. But like many other cases that involve domestic violence, a girlfriend of a violent man was murdered. Or I'm sorry, ex-girlfriend. Sharon was killed after she had left Victor, and domestic violence victims are most often killed after they leave their abuser because that represents a loss of control to the abuser, and it makes that person so angry that they get angry enough to kill. And, of course, most people who are murdered are murdered by someone they know. Very true. They are murdered by most of the time. You're correct. So it's highly doubtful that a victim of domestic abuse is going to be the victim of a random murder or an armed robber. It's very unlikely. Especially if it's very close to the time of separation. And, of course, you know, throughout this episode, we've established a pattern of behavior with Victor Gant. So it would not be surprising to me at all that he was capable of that and of possibly even other murders. I also think that because he was a cop, he was maybe just a little bit smarter than your average murderer. Uh, his particular his particular skill sets could have helped him elude capture. Also, keep in mind, psychopaths do tend to be very intelligent. That's true. They are intelligent up to a point, and that is Victor Gantz. That's pretty much all I have to say about him in this episode. Brian, do you have any final thoughts? Yes. Uh, if you're in a relationship with someone or if you're dating someone, uh, you have to look for the warning signs. You should, in the back of your head, have warning signs as to whether or not you are dating or in a relationship with a psychopath. And those red flags come very fast and very early. 
like someone who like if you're if you're going through emotional pain because something terrible has happened in your life the psychopath is not going to be very supportive of you uh probably isn't going to hug you try to console you or they do but they use it as a manipulation tactic true like true um I don't know, for example, oh, did this you had a bad day at work? Well, here's some ice cream, but I'm going to make fun of your body because you ate ice cream. Yes, the 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 abuse is going the abuse takes a variety of forms, even psychological. And there. what's even worse is that sometimes these sorts of people will try to pass it off as a joke like, "Oh, ha ha." You're eating ice cream. Do you, do you really need any more pounds? He he he. It's not. It's not funny. No, no. And also look for look for acts, you know, like sadistic acts, or even the enjoyment of even fictional sadistic acts, or even like on on a, on a say on on a TV show. Yes, or even, uh, you know, what is now known in our current vocabulary as love bombing, where they just instantly just say, I love you, I love you, like, a million times. You're so beautiful, you're so handsome, whatever. Like, all this very flowery, complimentary language. They don't really know you right away. Okay? They don't really know you. And as my very wise social media manager, Lucy told me in a recent conversation, she, she said, you cannot fill in the spaces, of, the spaces of somebody else. You have to let them fill in their own spaces for you. Yes, that, that, that's very true. Yeah, there's a thought, on, and a very important thought on, what, on if you believe you're about to be abducted by someone, you <coughs> it's all right. You absolutely cannot get into the car with a stranger. Yes, under any really circumstances. Try, try not to let that happen. Try not to let that happen. But if it does happen, try to, to think of any way that you can to escape. Whatever threat, whatever threat you're facing. Uh, to entice you to get into the car, you're better off making the abductor attempt to do it to you right then and there. Because if there's an attempt, if there's an attempt to harm or kill you at what's called the primary crime scene, you have the best chance of survival there. Versus being transported to what becomes known as the secondary crime scene, where the perpetrator has more time to do what he wants to do to you. Whereas on the primary crime scene, the perpetrator does not have as much time to do what he wants to you. And also, um, if you're in that situation, if you're wearing high heels, it is much better to kick off those heels and run through the dirty streets of where you live than to get in that car with somebody. Escape is your priority at that point, and chances are the perpetrator does not have the time to go after you. 
And if they're in a car and if you're on foot, you have a little bit more options than a car would have. Like you can run down sidewalks, into a business, through alleyways, up to somebody's house. You have a little bit more leeway than a, like you can go places on foot that a car cannot go. Without being suspicious, like if, if, a car can't drive on the sidewalk without attracting attention. And of course, instance. your direction of flight should be against traffic. So you're more nervous. Oh, yeah. So the car can't follow you, right? Okay. The car can't follow you without driving against traffic to do uh, so. Okay. You see, or if if it is a two way street, they they still have to turn around. Right. Right. That's true. Or if it's a yeah that yeah okay all right well. Dear listeners, until next week, when we next week, we are going to talk about the person who actually got caught and charged on just a single charge. And of course, we will also be discussing the possibility of a third killer. So until then, be safe, be kind, and don't park next to vans. And if you're ever being questioned by law enforcement and you are not the victim of a crime or the witness to a crime, be sure to lawyer up. And if an area that you may go to is dark, dangerous, and you do not feel safe, don't go there in the first place. Don't even be there. <laughs>